0: Blessing us with those selections. Would you join me this morning in two passages of Scripture? The first being John chapter 8. I want to read very quickly verses 1 through 11. John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him to be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left there alone with the woman where she had been in the mist and straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did not one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. And then if you just flip over to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, And let me read very quickly verse 25 through 29. Psalm 119 verse 25 through 29. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. I have told of my ways, and thou hast answered me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me understand the way of thy precepts, so I will meditate on thy wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me, and graciously grant me your law. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Steve, I can't, can't hear myself in these monitors. Can you give me a little bit more? Thank you. Lord, I want to do better. Help me to break this habit. I want to do better. Help me to break this habit. There's a story told about the late Calvin Coolidge when he returned from home after an absence one Sunday morning. His wife asked him where had he been. He responded, to church. She said, to church, what did the minister say? He said, he talked about sin. She said, what did he say about sin? and he said he was against it. On the surface, that might not sound as humorous as it is attempted to be, but there's a profound word in that response. He talked about sin and he said he was against it. In the story of John's Gospel, chapter eight, a story that is not in the original manuscripts but yet finds itself in the context of our pericope, here's a woman who is a living, walking testimony of most of us, if we're honest, with ourselves. The difference is that her violation has been made public. Everybody knows, more poignantly, the Savior knows. In fact, there are those who decided that they would infringe in her space of privacy and bring her out for public acknowledgment and for the sake of condemnation, that they not only may find some way in which to make this woman feel guilty, but to further impose the idea that there's a possibility that they can find some manner in which to trap Jesus into saying something that they think he would later regret. What's fascinating about this story is that the name of the woman is left absent. No one can acclaim as to who exactly this woman is. And whenever I read that in scripture, that's always a licensed for me to place my name in that category. She's left unnamed, and yet she becomes the victim of what I call religious oppression. She is guilty of violating a moral law. We all do that. So says Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no one can lay claim that they live a life of perfection to the point that there is no violation in their actions in terms of the moral law of God. In fact, she may be guilty of violating a moral law, but condemnation at the moment is not what's needed. Somewhere between her confrontation by the religious officials, she probably already knew that they would bring with them condemnation because they were Pharisaic and strict adherers to the law. But she needed what was available in between. She is in a rock and a hard place. She is guilty of a crime that she knows that she has violated. But she also knows that even though she is guilty of the crime, There's the reality of a merciful God who knows how to look beyond the fault and see the need of the moment. Between confrontation and condemnation, she's searching for what all of us want to experience when we fall short of God's glory, compassion. She's looking for a hand that will bring her around to seeing not only her error, but having her witness a way of escape out that she doesn't have to repeat the same behavior again. Carl Jung, unlike Sigmund Freud, who was an atheist, yet Carl Jung had a conviction of believing in God. Both men grew up as fathers. Their fathers were Lutheran pastors but Young caught the glimpse of what it means to know God in a very personal way and understood what it meant to grow up having condemnation experienced in his life. When he thinks about that, he writes in a very pointed way, I quote, condemnation doesn't liberate. It oppresses even more. I am the oppressor of the person I condemn not his or her fellow friend or fellow sufferer in the experience. Young said, I'm not not trying to excuse what they have done, but I'm trying to help them see that there's a way out of this jail, this self-imposed prison. All of us, perhaps, at one point or another, and may even be now, We struggle with internal sin, habitual habits. We have practices that no one knows of but ourselves, and we certainly don't want anyone else to know what it is that we're doing, lest it would ruin our reputation, and most importantly, we probably would experience condemnation by way of guilt. But we already know that we're guilty of a crime because if you're a Christian, according to 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 3, there's a consciousness that God works on whenever we're guilty of a violation. We know when we've done wrong, we've said the wrong thing, done the wrong thing, thought about the wrong thing. We know it because there's a guilt within us, but we've learned to push that guilt aside and continue on because there's a bit of satisfaction in trying to accomplish what our own flesh desires to have. This woman who is caught in this space of violation, she doesn't know, at least I don't think, that these Pharisees, these religious teachers are actually only using her as a pawn on the table. They're merely maneuvering her that they might find some manner in which to bring conviction to Jesus because they know. Look at what they do. They bring and confront her by bringing her to Jesus and then says to Jesus, Master, teacher, rabbi, what are you going to do? Now she's been caught in the very act of adultery. Not that we got rumor that she's done something. We, we saw her in the very act of adultery. They're going to also bring condemnation to her because they says now the law of Moses says that we are to stone her. And I'm always fascinated with religious people who try to act as if they are the writers of morality and they only give you half of a scripture when they're quoting it. For that's exactly what they did. They quoted Leviticus 20 and 10, but they only quoted a piece of it because it says that whenever someone's caught in adultery, both participants are guilty of the crime. Amazingly, they only brought one participant to the face of Jesus. Their idea is that if he condones what she did, then he would be violating the law of Moses. But if he speaks against what she did, then he would be at odds with the people at large because he would no longer be the friend who sits with sinners wherever he finds them. So they believe they could actually find Jesus and place him in a very compromising position. What they didn't know was that Jesus doesn't specialize in condemnation, but he specializes in being compassionate to people who are broken and found in situations that are uncompromising, and yet even condemning in its own right. They thought that if they flipped this thing that Jesus would break down and they would have a word against him, says verse six. But unbeknowing to them, the master flipped the script on them. As they kept badgering Jesus, says the story, amazingly, he stoops down and begins to write in the sand. Some say that he may have wrote the commandment that said that thou art not to commit adultery. Others say that he may have begun to list sins of those who are standing around looking to see what will happen. It is amazing that when he stood back up, he said in response, here's what we're gonna do. If one of you think that you're brave enough to cast the first stone, more pointedly, if you have no sin in your life, go ahead and throw it. And the scripture says, one by one, they moved away from the moment And I like when it says, from the oldest, and then it began to decline. And I would like to think that the oldest probably left quickly because if he did write their sins in the sand, that list probably would have been extremely extensive. And they recognized what had been hidden in the past had now come to light. I think the word does say whatever is done in the dark will come to the light but I think they realized there's no need for us to throw any rocks because if we start throwing rocks those rocks very well may take a new direction and come back to us so they started leaving one by one. I say this because as I look at this story I'm convinced that we all struggle with something on the inside of us whatever that issue might be. You can list it because you already know what it is. It's a habitual nagging illness, in a sense, that just won't seem to go away, day in and day out. Whether it's lying, whether it's cheating, whether it's stealing, whether it's gossiping, whatever it is, it has become a part of my composition And I just can't seem to get this ailment out of my life. When I think about how something nags us that shouldn't be there uh, in the first place, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. When he raises the question to us, should we continue in sin after being delivered from it, that God's grace may abound, God forbid, he says. But we have been set free, says Romans chapter 6. But then he throws in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing it. It's as if Paul says, I already know that day in and day out, we all have this struggle of some kind as we're trying to work out our soul's salvation with fear and trembling but then he undergirds me with another level of encouragement when we go to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus in other words Paul says actually the habit that you have that's not of God the chain of its power has already been broken you are really only living in an illusion In other words, he's saying, if you recognize that God's already given you the power to break that thing, it's already in you, but you have to have a made-up mind and a determined spirit to break that which become a habit in the context of your being. When Carl Jung further wrote this book entitled Modern Man in Search of a Soul, he conveys what I think to be both a professional opinion, but likewise, a research in which he did in reference to how the soul of man struggles with trying to break a habit because man finds it difficult to find someone who will actually listen to him. Listen to him. He quotes, I says, troubled individuals struggle to transition from pain predicament to freedom because they find it difficult in locating persons who actually know how to listen. Not condemn, but listen. Every one of us who is listening to others need to be listened to in return. Unless I have someone to listen to me and to guide me, I seldom have the right to assume that role will be actually for others in their lives. Now here is something that's transformative to me, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Once a man or woman's mind has been expanded with an idea, concept, or experience that's been spoken to them, they can never be satisfied with going back to where they were. In other words, when God spoke salvation to you, this is what Romans 6 is all about. When God spoke salvation to you, you're going to really try to say that you feel good about going back to where you were delivered from? Are you really willing to say that God's grace was not sufficient enough to a point where in delivering you, you would rather go back, as Peter says, to the vomit and lick it up to which you have vomited out? God forbid, says Paul. Why? Because the grace that has delivered you from that previous old man, as he tells us in Ephesians and Galatians, is the same grace that will keep you in the new man to whom you are. So in 2 Corinthians 5:17, Paul says, and this is why the English version is a bit of an error, we are new creations in Christ, old things are passing away, And behold, all things are becoming new. Now watch this, because if the old things had completely passed away, we wouldn't be having this conversation about having a sin habit. But we are struggling with some of the old things that kept us in bondage. And when God broke the chains from us, we really submitted to the temptation to return back to the prison to which we had been let out of. And what the writer is trying to tell us in this interesting story is this woman probably knows that her life is not where it ought to be, but amazingly, as Jesus sits and listens to being condemned, this woman being condemned by the religious people, he dealt with, their own sin without mentioning it. He just simply said, if you don't don't have one, go ahead and throw the rock. Go ahead and cast the stone. Go ahead and gossip. Go ahead and criticize. Go ahead and lay your claim that you're a better person than they are. But I'll guarantee you, says Jesus, you won't be able to find the words to do so. And they couldn't. But here's the liberation. When they all left, No one was standing there but Jesus and this woman. And listen to the question that Jesus posed. Where are your accusers? They're all gone, aren't they? Is there anybody here to condemn you? No, Lord, no one's here. Here it is, here's a liberation. Neither will I. Go ahead and leave. But don't do this again. The story takes me to the space of Psalm 119, because in Psalm 119, there's nothing consistent about the psalm. It's the longest psalm in all of them, but there's nothing consistent. It's not like a chain. You know, in a chain, there's a link upon link upon link upon link, but not so in Psalm 119. In fact, it's more like a string of pearls, each set of scriptures, every eight verses, has its own particularity and character. And when I get to this text here, I find something amazing that's constantly repeated in the text that's worth us considering in dealing with habitual habits in our life. Two things. One. You can try the best you can to exercise positive thinking and breaking some chains, and some you can. But I would contend that it's far better to utilize the divine word of God and trust the Holy Spirit to empower it to empower you listen to something repetitive in these few verses in psalm 119 beginning in verse 25 there is a struggle in the soul of the writer as he conveys he is conveying that something is troubling him something is burdening him something is causing him to have a difficulty in staying on the straight road but it's to a point where his conscience as he would say, his soul cleaves to the dust of the earth. In other words, whatever it is makes him feel so low that he feels like he's at the base of the earth. It can be heard likewise in Psalm 44 around the 25th verse where the writer seems to say the same thing as well about his soul being clinging to the dust of the earth and the question comes, how bad does your sin make you feel? Does it get us to a point where we feel not just guilty but completely condemned and we wonder why we keep engaging in the same particularity over and over and over again and we cry out as the writer does, Lord, I want to do better but I need you to help me break this pattern break this cycle break this habit in my life look at verse 25 my soul cleaves to the dust of the earth but one great thing he does is he gives his own remedy he recognizes that he can't do anything to change himself so he needs the help of god i want to say to you first john 1 and 9 is that very mark itself that tells us if you want to break out of a sin habit, here's what John says, if we can sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. But he says, first, there has to be a confession. You've got to talk to God and say, Lord, I recognize that where I am and what I'm doing is not pleasing before your sight. And here's another peep into eternity that you might want to consider how good God is as often as you do it, and yet you are able to arise to the newness of life on the next day. That's grace giving you another chance again. That's God saying to us, I could condemn you because Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Sin will pay you. You may not like the salary it pays you, but it will pay you. But the gift of God is eternal life. And what I like about that text is that it not only tells me that my context is secured in eternity, but here comes God, likewise telling me that I will even rescue you now when you are in your broken state. And this writer in Psalm 119 says, My soul is cleaving to the dust. And then he says, Lord, I need you to help me. First thing I need for you to do is revive me. Look what it says. Revive me. Bring me back to life. Put me back on the right road. Point my eyes in the right direction. Help me to create the right desire. But I can't do that unless I read your word. Look at the verse. Revive me according to your word you're not getting out of this without the word let me tell you why Isaiah 55 says beginning in verse 9 God says when you speak my word what it will do in verse 11 it goes forth with an assignment attached to it and with that assignment attached to it Lord I want you to revive my life and Isaiah says that as God sends the rains and the snow down from the heavens unto earth to plenish the ground that it might bring forth seed for harvest and bread for the hungry, so my word, when it goes out with an assignment attached to it, It will do exactly what I've assigned for it to do and here it is, it will not return to me void. In other words when you send the word out if you cry out Lord revive me right where I am don't wait until I get myself together. We ain't never gonna get ourselves together. Don't wait until I get myself in the right frame of mind. Help me Lord get to the right frame of mind. Help me make the right decisions. Help me look into the word that I might find life but it's got to be in the word nowhere else but in the word he gives us the remedy for God helping us Lord revive me bring me back and here's what he's saying right now where my life is spiritually I don't have the same joy I don't have the same peace I don't have the same satisfaction I don't have the same stability that I had when you first saved me. You remember when we first got saved we were on fire for the kingdom we certainly believed that anything the devil tried to do it would always be defeated but over time life and its trials and life and its challenges has dealt us blow and something has tempted us to a point where we were willing to agree to its temptation and now it has us in a strong hold. It has a foothold in our life. It's building a fortress all around us and we don't see any way out but this writer says all you got to do is lift up your voice and remember Lord revive me. Let me go back to the way that I used to be when you first saved me. Let me see the light one more time. Let me have the joy one more time. Let me have the peace one more time. Let me have the power one more time and he's telling us God will revive you According to the word, but you're not going to get outside of the word. John 6 and 63, Jesus says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are light. Do you realize how powerful your words are? By being, according to Romans 4, an heir and a joint heir with Christ and with God, you have the same power that God has made a veil to Jesus is made a veil to you that's how powerful your words are and when you speak they either give life or they give death according to Proverbs 19 because life and death is in the power of your tongue. Your tongue has that much authority. I spent the last couple of weeks showing you how Jesus looked at that demon and told that demon come out of him and don't come back here again because he spoke directly to it with the authority that the father had given him. You have that same authority to say to that habit that keeps robbing you of your life in the name of Jesus I command you to leave this place and then you got to have a made-up mind for Paul tells us in Romans 12 and 1 and 2 that you have to have a renewed mind so that you can make a decision to fight for your spiritual journey look what he says revive me according to your words Here it is, 1 John 1 and 9 again, but in a different way. I have told of my ways, and you've answered me. Thank goodness that I don't have to tell anybody else what's going on in my life spiritually. Because if I told you or you told me, it may get publicized. It may be splattered all over social media, hashtag XYZ. It may be told to someone I don't want to know, but aren't you glad that God keeps a secret very well, that only God knows about who you are and what you are? But here's the strange thing. When we resort to the idea of condemning each other, we're all still guilty of the same crime. I told him this morning, I'll tell you, look around. Just look around. Look all around to your left and right. Just look around. Now look up here at me, and look at all the folk behind me in the choir. You know why I don't, we don't have a right to condemn each other? Because we all are condemned criminals, according to the Bible. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. So how does the pot tell the kettle that it's black when it's just as black? In other words, how do you sweep my house when your house got just as much dirt? Or how do I tell you how you need to live when I haven't got myself together to live? He says in this 25th verse, I thank you God that I've been able to share with you all that nobody else knows. As I said this morning, aren't you glad that don't nobody know your rap sheet but God? Look what he says. He says, I have shared it with you, and thank you, God, for answering me. He's trying to tell us, no matter what the sin is, as Jesus answered the woman in her her context of condemnation, he set her free. God does the same for you. Go, go, and sin no more. Forgiveness is yours. Many times we stay where we are because we don't want to confront where we are. And so by not confronting, we become unable to set ourselves free. And this writer says, if you ask God to revive you, he'll not only set you free, but bring you back to what you've lost. But watch the next line. He says, not only revive me, but look at verse 26. Teach me. Teach me your statutes. Not only revive me, but make me a student of the word. See, there are eight different words that the psalmist used throughout Psalm 119. They all refer to the word. Some of them are called statutes. Some of them are called precepts. Some of them are called commandments. Some of them are called law. They all mean the same thing, Lord, Teach me what your word says about living a life of holiness to you. Now, what's amazing is we have this concept in our mind when we think of holiness that that means that, of course, from this point going forward, I'll never make another mistake. I'll never say the wrong thing. I'll never think the wrong thing. I'll never consider the wrong thing. I wouldn't do anything that's contrary to the word and will of God. That would be a perfect conclusion if you were not in the flesh. But you still live among people in an environment, in circumstances, in context that will stretch your holiness to the means of being tested. It's as if God is listening very attentively and suggesting to Job, uh, to Satan about Job, yet about us, have you considered my folk at great little Zion to stretch them? And Satan says, they're they only serving you for what you give them. In fact, if you stripped them of what they have, if you took away what they possess materially, if you made sure that they were not physically healthy anymore, they would curse you to your face. And I need to be taught God's word, because when that moment of test and trial comes, rather than to yield to the temptation, I yield to the Spirit of God to trust that even in the darkest hour, his grace is still sufficient. Can you not hear Paul once again screaming in the Second Corinthians writing of the place in this side, or in the language that he says, Satan is buffeting me he is challenging me he has placed this in my life and God doesn't remove it because God doesn't always take you away out of evil sometimes God's going to leave you there to deliver you through evil so you can see that you can live in the midst of evil and you will know that by knowing the word of God he says revive me He says, teach me, but look what he says. I want you to teach me, but then I want you, verse 27, to make me. It's a reference to the idea of Jeremiah who says that we are nothing more than pottery on the wheel, and God being the potter to make us in what He'd have us to be. And this writer is saying, God, make me into the man or the woman that you want me to be so that I might represent all that you are. And how does He do that? Look what the text says so I can know the way and understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. I love Paul, not only because Paul represents the reality and the pragmatism of life in Romans 7, but I also love David, and I love David because even though when you read the life story of David, once his sin is acknowledged, As the prophet Nathan confronts him, Nathan gives a condemnation, but yet Nathan gives a way out of his issue. He ends up suffering the consequence, and although his life no longer is at the same level that it was, and I want you to understand, why do I want you to break this cycle in your life? Because sometimes the consequence can be quite devastating. Devastating. For David not only loses a child, but David also loses the kingdom. And David is not allowed to build the temple because the blood of war is on David's hands. And David also has to run from his son who wants to kill him. And David spends his life running from Saul, running from his son Absalom. David has a rough time, all because he yielded to temptation in the struggle with Bathsheba. Sin is so exciting in the moment. It's tempting, but it's so exciting when you engage. Your flesh, says Galatians 5, is being satisfied. But the devil only gives you the beginning of a story and never even tells you what the conclusion will be. We'll even allow you to go up into the crescendo in the middle where everything seems to be all that you desire for it to be. He'll tell you and he will show you how high you can go but will never tell you how hard you can fall. And this writer says, Lord, I want you to teach me, and I want you to show me, and I want you to make me understand your precepts, your word. Is it David that says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you? Or is it Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, renewing me the right spirit? Or as David said in that 51st Psalm again, even after being delivered, my sin is ever before me. That's consequence. Because sometimes you can violate the law and although God may wipe it clean in terms of your spiritual accountability, the residue you are still left to deal with. I'm reminded of Tammy Faye, Tucker, who was found guilty of killing someone and became a Christian in prison, I was amazed at how many people thought that they could pray her through in acquittal, And only to find out that she's been given, the, she was given the death penalty and had to suffer death. Although she's forgiven, she still had to deal with the consequence of sin's crime. That's all I'm trying to tell you. We may think we're getting away with it, but whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That I might meditate on your wonders. The reason why we have what we have in scripture, an excellent, excellent example, is to show us If you ever wonder what's going to happen if you get out of my will, just look at so-and-so, and and look at so-and-so, and and look what happened to so-and-so. In fact, Paul wrote a whole chapter on, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 10, or maybe 1 Corinthians 10, where he he reminds those Corinthians, listen, everything that happened to Israel was an example to you that you don't go down the same road. And maybe our parents are right when they try to tell us, listen to me, listen to me. I've already been down there. I'm just trying to help you avoid the landmines that's already there. But when you are youthful and when we are strapped into the practice of sin, don't nobody know anything about the sin but us. We are the expert. Not remembering as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there is absolutely nothing new Under the sun. All through the Bible, they can all tell you, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, the jumpsuit, the suit, the whole nine yards to show you I know what you're already dealing with. He wants elevation from the dust. And I got a question for you. Are you really tired of being annoyed by that sin in your life? Do you want to get up from the dust to which you find yourself? Here it is. Lord, revive me. Lord, teach me. Lord, make me. Why? Verse 28, because my soul weeps because of grief. In other words, he says, I am so sick and tired of even committing the sin, and then afterwards, I feel so guilty. Actually, that's a good thing for that person. That lets you know God is still at work in your life. Because one one tragic danger in the Old Testament was when Israel became so committed to practicing sin that when God lifted his glory, he instructed his servant to write above the tent door, Ichabab. Ichabab means the glory of the Lord has departed. But when it left them, a battle came up. And Israel called out for God to help them. But the text says they got no help because they didn't even know that the glory of God had left their presence. So if God is still working on your conscience while you are working in the midst of this thing, God's trying to tell you, I'm trying to get you to a point of repentance because once I take my hands off of you, then my glory is no longer there. So listen to this song. It's, I'm almost done. My soul weeps because of grief and because it's weeping, he says, Not only revive me, not only teach me, not only make me, but finally strengthen me. See it right there in verse 28? Strengthen me according to whatever Pastor Murphy says. That's what what my Bible says. I don't know about yours. That's what it says it says strengthen me according to whatever the deacons teach us in sunday school that's there it is i don't know what bible y'all reading but that's what mine says strengthen me according to what my friends tell me strengthen me according to what the prophet says my real bible says Strengthen me according to your word. Because at least this writer is acknowledging sin weakens me, but the word strengthens me. And it strengthens me enough to be able to handle that I might get the sin in my life. Now, how do I know that? Last verse here in verse 29. He tells him, remove the falsehood from me. Get this deceptive stuff out of my mind and graciously grant me your word. There it is again. Can't get away from the word. Give me your word. One reason we fail to break a habit is because we never apply the word to the habit. So we resort to positive thinking and it has its space. But the Bible tells us two principles and then I'm out of here. Number one, you got to identify and remove. Can I give you the word of God again? Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm going to give you a few scriptures then we're going to have benediction. Deuteronomy chapter 12, here's what it says, identify and remove when God speaks through Moses to Israel, listen to what he tells him, identify and remove. Verse 2, verse 1, these are the statues, once again, law, word, judgments, which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God has promised your fathers is given you to possess. As long as you live on earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their astrums with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their God and you shall obliterate their name from the place. In other words, everything that ought not be in your life, get rid of it. That's the shouting point right there. But you know why we can't shout? Because now I got to think about not only what it is, but who it is I got to get out of my life. And that might be a challenge, because I like who it is that helps me commit what I'm doing with them. Identify and then remove. Flip over to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. Help me out, Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. Go to your left. Numbers chapter 33. And listen to the word of God. Verse 55 and 56. Numbers chapter 33. Verse 55 and 56. Listen to what the word says. I'm just trying to give y'all some scripture. That's all. Trying to give you some scripture. 55, 56. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants from the land before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain on them, here it is, here it is, will become as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and they shall trouble you in the land which you live. I told you, you got to identify and remove but Moses speaks and says if you don't get it out, it's going to not only blur your vision and even blind you but be an aggravation to you as long as you live in this land. All right y'all in shout. Here's my last point. Not just identify and remove, but invest and replace. See, your spiritual life requires that you invest in it. You got to, listen, we invest in our clothes, in our professional development. But when it comes to Scripture, and we're supposed to be living by Scripture, we won't invest in learning Scripture. One more time. Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Listen to me in Psalm 55, verse 17. Psalm 55, verse 17. Psalm 55, verse 17. I'm going to let you out of here real soon. Psalm 55, verse 17. Here it is. Here it is. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. You know what that means? I'm going to cry out to God all day long until God moves in my life to help me get this thing out of it, to help me break this cycle. So not only must I got to be a Bible reader study the scripture, but I got to become a prayer warrior. I got to talk with God, and here's what I love about it. I don't have to have any special language. I don't need religious language. I said, Lord, I need your help because I'm about to lose my mind on X, Y, Z. And God comes through to help out. you got to invest in your spirituality. And you got to replace what you move out with that which brings life. Let me give you another one. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Quickly, 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 Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Talking about investing now, investing and replacing in your own spiritual life. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, the roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued... And he continued and he continued, and he continued on his knees three times a day, praying and doing and giving thanks before his God as he had done before. So that when the temptation would come up to challenge him, it didn't bother him because he was already prepared, because he had prayed. Jesus, Bill of offense. All around me. He didn't say those words, but that's what he's doing. All around me. All around. One, one I gotta give you one more, then I'm done. First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. You ought to know this by heart. You ought to, it's three words. Three words. I'm not going don't turn to it. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 17. Pray without there it is. Investing and replacing. That's how God said I can help you break that cycle in your life if you spend time in my word and spend time talking with me. I will revive you. I will make you. I will strengthen you. I'll do everything you need to get you back on the right track. My prayer is that you listen to the words that Jesus said to that woman. No one is here to condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I pray today that you leave here, no matter what that habit is, you tell yourself the Bible says I am more than a conqueror. I've already got the victory over this thing. I'm going to break this chain today based on the word of God. And then I'm going to get into the word so God can keep supplying me with the power that I need. Because it's not, listen, remember I told you last week about that demon when it left that boy? It wasn't going to leave without a confrontation, without a fight. It's going to come back again. But you got to be ready. Now, I don't mind a good fight when I know you're coming back but I'm even more happier when I know I got something to fight you with and I'm going to win the battle so if you're smart enough all you got to do is peep to the last page and the last page is the book of Revelation you've already won the battle is already yours Revelation 12 says and he overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony you already victorious walk in your victory walk in your power speak speak if you have a problem learning how to speak just go to genesis chapter one and watch god go to work let there be and there it was the evolution of god's words creating bringing about life this is the word of god for the people of god thanks be to god Amen.